You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday night post-game edition of the Talking About podcast. I'm Sean Kennedy. Joining me on the line this week is Jackson Frank of Liberty Ballers. Jackson and I are going to talk about the extremely disappointing 102-101 loss to for the Sixers at home against the Clippers. Sixers had a 24-point lead in the second half, and uh, yeah, real shades of the Atlanta series blowing blowing a 20-some point lead at home. Jackson, what happened in that second half that the Sixers blew this one? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, that entire game, they had no way to score if Joel wasn't involved. Um, you know, the right now they're really, really short on wing depth and the Clippers are flooding wing depth. You know, they've got Amir Coffee out there despite, and he's been impressive despite the fact that Paul Jordan and Kawhi Leonard aren't there. You know, Marcus Morris has been great, but he, he can play as well. Um, I, I, I did a rough calculation for the end of the game. This could be off. So, um, uh, someone you know, corrects me, that's totally fine. But by my calculations, this Joel was involved with 55 of the 78 points the Sixers scored when he played. Uh, which means they scored 23 in the 11 minutes he didn't, uh, which is not terrible, but I think 55 to 78 is probably not a great balance you want. You don't want your superstar to be involved in over, I think it's about 70% of the offense. Um, maybe you want him involved in 70% of possessions, but you don't want him to directly influence that many possessions. And so uh, just no real way to score if, if Joel, Joel wasn't a factor. George Yang, 3 of 11, you know, missed a lot of good looks, especially early. Uh, Tyrese Maxey got off to a good start, but I think he was two of eight after the, you know, I think he was five of 10 in the first half and then two of eight after that. Obviously the final shot was, you know, not really his fault. You just got to do what you can do with that play. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just that. And then, you know, I don't know, I don't know exactly when they were up 24, but early in the third. And then, um, you know, that, that bench unit kind of, kind of turned on, you know, autopilot a little bit defensively as well. For some reason they had Furkan Korkmaz at the point of attack. And I know they're limited right now. You know, they're without Ben Simmons, of course, but also Matisse Thibel, Danny Green. You don't have a lot of great options to play there, but that didn't work either. And so it was just a weird game. It got tense toward the end, but it felt like there was a 10 to 12 minute stretch where like I felt like I was kind of going through motion, the motions. I could tell the Sixers were so strange game. But, yeah, they just kind of, you know, they took their foot off the gas pedal, which is a cliche, but it was because they couldn't score without Joel and they couldn't get stops, you know, on the perimeter, especially. Yeah, the you mentioned Niang having a tough shooting night. He and Korkmaz combined to shoot two of thirteen from three, uh, and Isaiah Joe one of four. So those kind of secondary guys that are in there just to hit shots and are getting open looks, they they just weren't falling tonight. Uh, and, and we should mention Joel had forty points. He, you know, another superstar performance to be sure. Six assists. He did have a few uh, costly turnovers down the stretch, so it wasn't his most. Yeah, I thought this was probably his his least great passing game in a little while. Like, you know, sometimes his turnover, his high turnover count comes from just maybe a little overzealous dribbling, but he had a couple of skip passes intercepted. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, the the bad the bad turnover at the top of the key with a few minutes left. Uh, Just yeah, not not his cleanest performance, and yet forty 
40 with 13 <laughs> rebounds and six assists. Like that should be enough to win, yeah. to win a yeah, game. We're, we're nitpicking. And even that yeah. turnover, I think, you know, that happened. And I kind of wonder, I rewatched it to kind of see what it was and nobody really gave him help. Right. It was that, you never like that play kind of felt emblematic. Like he had the ball at the top of the key, two guys doubled him and everyone else just kind of stood in the corner in the wing. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course I'm not saying that Joe was the reason they were playing poorly, but he's had so many good games that it is, you know, worthwhile to mention the other passing wasn't as sharp as it's been despite some some awesome reads nonetheless from him yeah like even even in crunch time he had an amazing sequence that looked like he was going to pull their fat out of the fire he made this incredible behind the back pass to charlie brown under the basket which if that's matisse thibel you figure that's a dunk and the sixers might win this game but charlie brown puts up this little three-foot floater shot that is just one of the most awkward shots in basketball for anyone to try to make. And it, it doesn't go in. And then uh, Embiid gets a bit of revenge on the other end. He makes this incredible block of uh, Zubac on, uh, at the rim to uh, get it just before it would have been a goaltend blocks it away. And then he hits a three on the other end and you're like, all right, well, he looks like he's single-handedly going to do everything, but it, it wasn't quite enough. And as you mentioned, uh, Sixers caught a bit of a break in the final seconds with Marcus Morris uh, missing both free throws, but then Tyrese Maxey had a, a pretty good look. He had, he had a floater attempt with at the buzzer, but uh, yeah, stuck, stuck in the rim, which was a apt metaphor for the Sixers offense outside of a beat. That was, was weird to me because like, not just the outcome, but I, I was like, I don't know, maybe I didn't, maybe I need to rewatch the play, but I didn't feel like there was much of a plan. And I, and I'd feel like if, if you know that you're calling your last time out pretty, like pretty, like they didn't call it what, at the two minute mark. They probably called it 30 seconds, maybe on the right before the Joel dunk, if I recall, um, you know, his final bucket, like you would think that you would drop something. Right. And I just, maybe yeah. they did, you know, it's tough to go the full length of the floor in five seconds, but it didn't feel like there was much of a plan there. It just kind of felt like let's get the ball in the hands of our best ball handler who's also really fast and see what he can do. And it just, you know, like why, you know, and especially like the fact that they got to take the ball to bounds. Like obviously they lost about four seconds with that that scrum, but I would wonder like why isn't there a play where Joel's sitting up on the, the left block and he has, you know, get them, get in the ball and just see what he can do with a post turnaround, a fadeaway, something like that. So, yeah. um, you know, obviously you know, I'm not blaming any of the players, but I just, I was just confused. I feel like they were a little ill-prepared from the coaching staff's perspective because you had called a timeout, you know, pretty recently. And you should know that like, he might have taken the ball out of bounds to tie the game or win the game. And so um, that was just confusing. I, you know, it, it wasn't Maxie's fault. They didn't get the ball too well, but you would have thought that maybe they would have had some contingency plan to, to get him the ball considering he was 15 of 25 and, you know, yeah. air from, from the field in terms of mid range jumpers as of late too. Yeah, that's, that's fair to, in, in their defense, they might have assumed they would have had like nine seconds left to pull something off. And maybe at, at, you, you mentioned the scrambled and that burned about four seconds off. And there, there was a lot of confusion and whether the Sixers would even get the ball because the Clippers actually recovered it, but they were on the baseline. So they, they were deemed out of bounds. It, so it, it wasn't the most straightforward yeah. sequence. So yeah. Maybe less of a criticism and more yeah. just like a, a point to note, maybe that I was, that I was con- considered, I guess. I don't know. You know I think yeah. it's yeah, to note that it was a weird, weird play. And honestly, like after Morris missed the first one, I was thinking to myself, like the Clippers are going to get, he's going to miss a second and get the rebound. Right. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, they did get the rebound, but they, yeah. they ran out of 94 feet. So, but yeah, I agree. That's a fair point that, that things were thrown, thrown out of whack when, you know, four dudes hit the floor. <laughs> yeah. Three seconds. 
Yeah, I mean, that's you, you were definitely right to worry about that because once again, the defensive rebounding was a bit of a problem for the Sixers. The Clippers had a big offensive rebound down the stretch to get uh, a second chance opportunity that kind of put them back in the lead with a couple minutes left. Uh, just, just something that's been a been an issue for the Sixers all season. But um, pivoting to the Clippers real quick, they, they had seven guys in double figures, a really balanced offensive attack. Uh, Reggie Jackson led them with 19, but uh, it was pretty pretty evenly uh, distributed throughout their, their roster. You're, you're on the West Coast, so you probably watched more Clippers games than maybe a lot of Sixers fans have. What do you, what do you think they did well tonight? Because they, they are a team that's, as you said, missing Paul Jordan and Kawhi Leonard. But they, they showed a lot of heart to come back from down 24. Uh, they easily could have just chalked this one up as a, hey, we're on the East Coast. It's a tough road loss. Like, we're just, you know, waited to the next game to to turn it up. But they, they never gave up. They kept fighting. And uh, these are the games that, as a Sixers fan, you say, how did you lose that one? But if you're someone rooting for the Clippers, this could be something that may, maybe gives management the the go ahead to not be sellers at the deadline or just, I don't know. What, what did you see from them that they did well tonight? Yeah. I mean, their defense is really phenomenal. I know PG's played maybe 60% of the year, but um, they're really well organized on that end. They still have a good defenders and guys like Isaiah Hartenstein, Evita Zubats, Nick Batum was awesome tonight. He did a great job. I, mean, I know Joel got his numbers, but he did a great job of limiting how often Joel could get the ball. And that in itself is, is a win. Um, that came in tonight's game with a sixth-ranked defense. As I mentioned, you know, Paul George has played, you know, conservative roughly half the season. Kawhi has missed all of it. Um, so they're just really, like, as I mentioned, they have a bunch of wings out there that they can throw, you know, throw on the fold. Amir Coffey has been impressive on both ends, you know, since he entered the rotation. I don't know exactly when, but last maybe three weeks or so when I've caught Clippers games, he's popped in some ways. Um, Eric Bledsoe can drive you nuts offensively, but he can still play some defense. Um, Terrence Mann, you know, has some size and physicality and ability to move on the perimeter with some strength. So, um, that's what impressed me most this year is they're just really well organized on that end. And you saw that be the case. Um, you know, the Sixers kind of went away from Joel working in the mid post the last maybe 18 minutes of that game. And that's because the Clippers decided to front Joel and bring help on the backside. And as we know, the Sixers aren't very good at making entry passes. And it's even tougher when you have two, six, eight, six, nine long wings, you know deterring you from making that path at all. So I was just really impressed with the defense and that's what really, really stood out to me most of the years. They just, you know, the offense can be pretty uh, tough to watch and that's going to be the case when you're without your, your two wing star creators, but um, the defense is really well coached and they execute well, you know, in addition. So that, that was definitely the case. And like, you know, again, Joel was awesome. I'm not going to say otherwise, but it didn't quite feel like some of the great Joel games we've seen this year in the sense that like, every possession the defense was in rotation because of what he offers. And that was because the Sixers couldn't get him a touch every possession. There were stretches where they didn't. So that's much, you know, it's partly an indictment of the Sixers ball handlers, but it's also a testament to what the, what the Clippers did defensively to limit how often he even got the ball. Cause once he got the ball, it was kind of a wrap for, <laughs> for the Clippers. Yeah. I mean, anytime he got it against Zubach or Hartenstein down low, it, it was either a foul or he was getting his, uh, but you're you're right. He he definitely had to work for it a lot more than Wednesday night when everything just seemed effortless. Like every everything he was doing was taking his maximum effort. Um, but it to be fair to the Sixers, you know, no Seth Curry in this one, who's typically their secondary scoring option. Uh, they're missing 
the wings like Matisse and Danny Green that they've been missing for a bit. Um, so you're pretty limited as far as where else they can turn. Do you think they could have done anything differently as far as generating offense? I mean, Tyrese Maxey had 18 shot attempts, but it still feels like he sometimes gets sidelined for long stretches of the game and he's just kind of like off in a corner. Do you feel like they're doing enough to get him involved with the ball in his hands at this point? Yeah, so a couple points. One, I think it's absolutely fair to bring up that you know, like the Sixers are down five rotation players. Like, however you deem Ben Simmons, whatever, like the fact of the matter is he is on the roster. He is a max level player who's been an all-star three years in a row and he's not playing. Then you they're without Shake Milton, Danny Green, Matisse Style, Seth Crazy mentioned, like, like yes, the Clippers are without guys, but the Sixers are also down some players. So um I always try to kind of caution that I like my stance is I think the Sixers are very good when they're healthy this year, even without Ben Simmons, but they're not healthy even without Ben Simmons. So that's always important to note as well. There are obviously issues, but um, I actually thought Maxi was pretty well involved in this one. I, in general, I agree that like, you know, there are times where he just, he just sits in the, in the corner, like in the start of the year, there were times he was in the dunker spot. They've kind of you know drifted away from that, but um, I thought he was pretty well involved and they were in a lot of high pick and rolls with their high pick and pops, whatever you want to call that play where Joel kind of floats to the free throw line. Uh, and so I thought that was encouraging to see. Like it, it seemed like Tobias was more of the third option in this game. And if you're a Sixers fan or you're a Tyrese Maxi supporter, that's what you want to see. You want to see Tobias kind of being the the third option. And then, um, so that that was good. But yeah, I don't I don't really have a, a great like. Yeah, I think a lot of times there's always a way the Sixers can do things better. But in this one, you know, they just I mean they shot okay. They shot well from three overall. But two, you know, it was a lot of it was buoyed by the fact that Joel and Tyrese went six of nine combined from three. Um, you know, Tobias only a couple of threes, Furkan one of six. He's still been in kind of a year-long slump. As we mentioned earlier, Niang one of seven. He's a guy who shot about 38, 39% from three on the year. So um, not a loss to that. We'd have to go back and rewatch it, honestly, I think. But um, it's just, you know, it's just the, the reality that they're down five rotation players from a team that, you know, for all of its faults last year was, was pretty dang good. Uh, and you know, yeah, you'd want to win that game when you have Joel Embiid, who's overwhelmingly the best player in it. But um, they're at they're at a tough spot where they. I mean, you're starting Isaiah Joe. He's not in the rotation. As much as I've enjoy, I've, I've enjoyed for Concorkmas, he has not played like a rotation level guy this year, unfortunately. Um, Charlie Brown Jr. It gives you a lot defensively, but um, that guy's got to sit in the gym and do mic and drills for <laughs> I mean, the amount of layups. He's, and he's probably what cost, not cop, but like he's missed what three or four layups off of knife passes from drill the last few games. So, yeah, it seems like there's two every game <laughs> that he's wide open from five feet in and it just right off the rim. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I just like, I don't know. I, I'm someone who I think if people have followed me long enough, my coverage of the team, I'm generally a little more tepid, but I just feel like this team is good when it has its full complement of players available. Well, I know the, the Clippers don't either, but um, I don't I don't think there was a lot more they could have done other than the guys executing better. And, you know, these guys are a lot of these guys are overextended. Furkan had to play at the point of attack. He was probably given too many ball handling responsibilities. So um, I don't think this team, you know, even at full strength without Ben is like a championship contender. But I, I just keep kind of cav- like offering the caveat that they're missing a lot of guys, too. They're not, you know, this team just you know, the way Tobias has played this year, unfortunately, this team is like not that good outside of Joel. And when you take away three or four or five of the rotation guys, you're, you're in a tough spot regardless of what the opponent looks like. And, and that was the case. Of course, you know, you win, you win the game if Furkan's four of seven instead of two of seven and, you know, Niang is five of 11 instead of three of 11, but, you know, schematically, I don't, I don't feel like there were a lot of issues beyond that last play of the game that I mentioned earlier. 
Yeah, maybe the answer is just that Nian, Corkloss, and Joe have to shoot better than three of 17 from three, and you, you'll be all right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's fair. We're, we, I, I think the fact that they blew a 24-point lead is going to be lead to a lot more skies falling discussions than if they had just been in a close game with the Clippers throughout the night and happened to lose. You, you might say like, oh, well, if that can happen. You're, you're missing a handful of starters. Uh, you know, it's the NBA. Every, everybody can get anybody on any given night. I, I think that blowing the huge lead is just what might lead people to overreact to, the, to this loss. Yeah, I, I think if I could just add a caveat in general, the, the thing that I would kind of latch onto, if you're looking for something to like, tangibly worry about it would just be the over-reliance of Joel like that even if Seth plays even if Danny plays Matisse whoever it is this team is still going to rely a ton on Joel offensively and that doesn't change if those guys are in and and I think you know as I mentioned earlier like they don't they don't have a guy on the perimeter as a ball handler who can take two hard dribbles and create a really easy lane to get Joel the ball they struggle against ball pressure we've seen it at times where like they have a 10-point lead with four minutes to go the defense ratchets it up and all of a sudden it's a one point game. And so um, I think that's kind of the broad issue with this team as it continues to ask so much of Joel. And that's been the case since you know, Joel was a rookie. Obviously he's developed into a guy this year who is pretty dang capable of it, but um, you know, that's a long standing worry, but that is kind of more independent of this game and just the general, you know, kind of flaws in this roster that have been, been there for years at this point, but this game, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, nothing stands out to me that I like that was pressing that we didn't know about this team before and that hasn't been there for, for years. But I guess you could say like, maybe, maybe if Seth Curry plays, you get a little more diversity because, you know, they don't really have that two man game. Just, you know, Furcon, I think is just doesn't have great chemistry with you all in that two man game. He had a little bit better with, it seemed like Ben last year and that transition, especially, but um, yeah, this, this game doesn't, doesn't really change my opinion of the Sixers beyond kind of everything we already knew about this team. And that's, they're, they're limited and they don't have as much talent as, as they would prefer um, in, in large part because Tobias has struggled and Ben Simmons hasn't played a game for them. That's you're working from a pretty big uh, deficit at that point. You certainly are. And you, you are right to point out that they rely a ton on Joel Embiid. Some might argue that that makes him an MVP candidate. And you, you made that argument in an article, uh, earlier this week for basketballnews.com. We're going to talk about that, but first we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so Jackson and I are going to talk Joel Embiid. He has been incredible since coming back from his COVID absence in late November, early December. Jackson, you wrote earlier this week, basketballnews.com, great article everybody should check out about how Joel has 
coming off a MVP runner-up season, I, I guess people might have assumed, okay, this is the ceiling, but he somehow surpassed expectations and done even more this season and, and raised his level of play to, to an, a whole nother caliber. Uh, in, in your mind, what has he most done this year to expand his game and, you know, take things to the next level from, from where he was a year ago? Yeah. I mean, like if I'm being fully honest, if you would have asked me before the year, like, is Joel better or worse than he was the previous year, I probably would have said a little worse, probably about the same, but um, I think he's like absolutely been better. I, 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 I'm sure the metrics probably are kind of a, a push, but just having watched basically every game he's played the last two years, I feel like I'm pretty well equipped to, to look at the eye test to an extent. But um, what stands out to me is, is the fact that I think his composure is at a new level this year. And that, that kind of bleeds into his general decision-making. Um, I, I felt like last year, and I, I kind of include this in the column, and it's probably a little outdated at this point because of updated numbers and, Joel's had a really efficient week, these three games. I think he's got like 130 points in, in three games or something. <laughs> yeah, we should mention uh, his uh, 50 points in 27 minutes against the Magic was the ninth highest point per minute total in NBA history. So that that probably did jack up his efficiency a bit for the season. Yeah, and I think he had 32 against the Wizards and 40 against the Clippers. So he's, he's averaging like a clean 40, 40.7 or something. My math is, is correct there quickly. Yeah. Um, this week, but coming into the game and he was, I think he was about, I think coming into the week, excuse me, he was about 60% true shooting, which relative to league average was about four and a half points above where last year was six and a half. Um, but he was only at 41% from mid range last year he was at 47%, 41 is much more in line with his career numbers, but he's still been able to be pretty close to last year's efficiency because of the composure. There's just not really a way to speed him up these days. Um, I think back to maybe those first two or three years in the league for Joel, where if you double teamed him, especially if you sent a, a double late when he kind of got into his move, he would, you know, he would force a shot. He would throw an errant pass. He would kind of, he would turn, he would go from this giant seven footer who can see everything on the floor to, you know, six, two guard who's getting swarmed by two players. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. He keeps his dribble alive more. He's, he's able to attack before the double team comes. Um, his interior passing has improved. I don't know, you know, I think we saw some of that develop a little bit Ben's rookie year, but since then it's been a little bit dormant. Um, has great chemistry with with Matisse in that dunker spot role. Um, we mentioned some passes against the against the Clippers. Uh, you know, he seems to be finding guys more often kind of when they cut. Last year he really got that skip pass down to the corners. Now he's added the interior shovel pass, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I also think he's kind of improved as an off-ball scorer a little bit. It just he just feels more decisive especially the last three or four weeks, they're kind of using him as a pick and pop guy. And he's got the nice, he'll catch the ball in the wing and he'll kind of pass fake into a drive. We saw a couple of those against the Clippers, a couple against the, the magic as well. Um, so it's just minor things. The screening's been better as well. I think the screen has been a little more inconsistent the last couple of weeks. Um, but I feel like generally he's been better about kind of actually creating space for, for guys when they, they run those side pick and rolls. I think he had a play in the fourth quarter against the Clippers where he, Set a good screen for Maxi, forced a switch, had Eric Bledsoe on him, and then Bledsoe tried to front him. They got the ball to the wing and they threw the ball to Joel, easy dunk. So something like that where, you know, he doesn't get the assist, but he's the one scoring and creating the play. So um, just, you know, it, I I think there are cliches that people talk about, but it's it's true with Joel. He doesn't get sped up, and there are reasons for it, like I mentioned, and that's just the key. You know, I just I just watch him, and it doesn't – he just has so many counters, you know, if, if the defense leaves a little bit of room on that double team, he'll step through to the middle for the 
that kind of the Hakeem-esque fadeaway that he likes in the middle. He'll do, go baseline a lot, too, to beat the double fork and come. He's not rattled against late help. That used, that really buried him, I think, even last year at times. So um, just really, really impressive. And then, obviously, the shot making has, has kind of come around since he returned from COVID. Um, I think he's almost up to 40% from three again after his three or three night. Um, you know, he's approaching 50, 40, 80, which is ridiculous for any player, let alone a, a guy like Joel who does everything he does inside of the free throw line on defense. So, and the volume biggest, too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, the biggest thing I, I would just say is the composure and patience. He just, he just reached a level to go from a guy who was an all NBA caliber guy who could get sped up against certain defensive schemes to, you, you can't really stop him these days. And I mean, you know, I, I think generally everyone, you know, is pretty much you know, resigned to that fact, but you'll still see people who are like, oh, they played this team or this, this opponent. And it's like, he's played like 19 different teams since, <laughs> since he came back from, from COVID. Like at some point it's just, nobody can stop him. And, yeah. Um, so that, that's what stood out to me the most. It just, it just feels like last year he was great and it was fueled by the shot making this year. It feels like, he's been great and it's kind of shot making and the way he processes the game coming together. And I think that's, that, that's a lot harder. You can always kind of benefit from better shot making. And I'm sure Joel deserves praise for improving his shot making, but um, the processing, you know, kind of right in his prime is really, really impressive to see that take a leap. Yeah. It's been, it's been six weeks now of him just getting 30 points a night as if it was just, as easy as breathing like it, it just seems to come like oh Joel's playing tonight he's going to get 30 he might get more but that's the floor for him so I don't know who these hypothetical defenders are that are out there that Joel hasn't gone up against that would purportedly slow him down but and I could be strawmaning to be fair <laughs> I, I want to maybe, maybe I'm reading the old criticisms but but yeah I just yeah I, I agree that yeah you're you're mean you're, I mean so what we're at you know Played his tenth game of the year about two months ago, and since then he's averaging, I think, about you know, this played twenty five games since coming back from Kobe's averaging about thirty one. So yeah, I mean, quite quite impressive. Um, you hit you hit on a lot of the key points. I think the the passing, his his recognitions, the double team coming, and getting those interior looks down to Matisse or it's been Charlie Brown the last couple of games. Uh, finding those guys underneath the basket has been much improved from previous years. Uh, the the other thing I would mention is the grab and go stuff. It seems like there's at least one play a night where he goes coast to coast himself, and it's just this unstoppable freight train. Um, he had another one against the Clippers tonight. Uh, that it, it's just watching a man that big move that purposely down the court. It, it's just amazing to watch. Um, and he, it's just like he decided one day, like, okay, I can do this now, so I'm just going to do it whenever I can. And it's just another it's like he's in a video game and he, he he gets this attribute that he can just add to his icon and now it's suddenly available for him whenever he needs it um just it's incredible to to watch I, him and just I think, and i think i just what what i think is most impressive about that part of his game which is certainly a point that needs to be recognized um you know i, I should have had the piece in front of me honestly there's so many different things he's improved at this year um but what's impressive is his body control and his kind of discretion on those plays, it doesn't feel like he gets himself into bad spots very often. And that can happen a lot. I think, you know, these are clearly different caliber of players, but someone who got to do that a lot last year and is a big man, someone like Demonis Sabonis. And obviously again, they're different, but like Sabonis would kind of dribble his way into tough spots sometimes. 
Obviously, he's smaller doesn't know, doesn't know the length of Joel, but Joel never really gets into bad spots on those plays. It feels like they don't score every time, but he's he doesn't get stuck where he's spinning around or pivoting around and he gets a three in the key or forces a pass. And so, um, the body control, the patience, you know, the discretion is really impressive. I think also the teammates around him deserve credit for filling the lane so well. Um, Tobias does well to fill the corners a lot too. Um, Tobias has his issues when he's leading the break at times, but I think off the ball, he's good. Max, he does a well, good job. Shake, Matisse, all of them. And so I, I just, that that part came to mind to me when I, I watched that that Joel dunk against Clippers tonight, where it was like, he's leading the break. Four guys are are on his, are flanking him, but they're not, you know, not running any interference on him. And so um, obviously most of the credit goes to, to Joel, but an effective transition game, you know, requires all five guys being on the same page. And, that can be tough. And it's, it's not like it's something Joel has dabbled in for, for four years. We did we saw some of it last year, but um, Ben Simmons is largely the guy leading those breaks and, you know, it's become Joel and Ben was a different type of player, right? He was largely kind of a, a pass first guy on the break and it worked a lot, but um, it's, it's testament to everyone involved for kind of enabling those grab and go sequences that are so fun and effective. Yeah. I was going to mention that that's a good point And that Ben having been the guy that did those those plays for all the years he's been with the team th- that probably enabled other guys to, to get accustomed to, to filling those lanes and Joel and Ben aren't doing the same things on those breaks, but their roles are pretty similar when, when that guy gets it and you have this point center type type person just grabbing and going and you know, to just get to your spots down the court. Um, so they certainly have experience uh, flanking their, a star leading the break like that. Um, so right now Embiid, depending on where you're looking, he's either like a plus 500 or plus 600 um, right around with Nikola Jokic and then Steph Curry and Giannis are the two favorites. I don't, I don't know where you would, uh, if you had to put your money on an MVP candidate, um, you can tell me if you have a clear opinion, but if you don't, um, what would you say the argument would be for Joel if you were making an MVP case for him? Yeah. So, I mean, I, it's a really fun debate. Um, because right now I think there are six players who kind of been in their own tier. Uh, that would be, you know, this is not in any order. So Sixers fans don't come at me. Um, it would be Jokic, Steph, Giannis, Katie, LeBron, and Embiid. Uh, Katie is going to fall out, unfortunately, because he's, you know, slayed to miss at least, I think three more weeks with an, with a knee sprain or maybe an MCL sprain. I don't recall exactly. Some, something is needed. Yeah. Like about four, yeah, about four weeks or so. Yeah. Four to six. I think then he injured himself last Saturday, Sunday. Um, so that, that's unfortunate, but, um, uh, right now my MVP, I think would be, would be Jokic, um, maybe Giannis, my top, but Joel would be third. And I, I think he's coming on strong. Um, the Sixers have a pretty hellish February and March. So a lot of it's going to come down to that. Like, I mean, if they, if they lose a lot of games, which could happen, I mean, they, they're playing good teams and I don't know what their health is going to look like. We don't know if they have players in place of Ben Simmons, uh, maybe improperly all of a sudden they have Ben Simmons, but, um, which is, you know, a very emphasis on the improbable part there. Um, but that, I think that will determine kind of, you know, what, what Joel's candidacy looks like. I, I think they're going to have to be within, you know, a 47, 48 win team in a minimum. I think they can be, because as I said, like when Joel plays, I think, you know, after tonight, there may be a 55 win pace. I think they were 57 win pace before the game. They were 23 and 10, now they're 23 and 11, but um, they also have good, I mean, they've had a lot of easy schedule, easy games, but they also have good wins. Bulls, you know, Bulls a couple times, Nets, Warriors, like they've won all those games with Joel playing. So 
Um, I the think Celtics that's, heat back to back last week was a yeah, good stretch yeah, for yeah. Obviously, the Heat were, I think they're without Lowry and, or they're out Bam, excuse me, not Lowry. Um, but, but still, I mean, the Sixers were without guys. I think, you know, I don't think Danny played because Danny Gunn's here in the Celtics. Matisse didn't play. So, still, still obviously an impressive win. Yeah, I think the Heat game is worth mentioning. Those five I mentioned, though, were just kind of the, uh, the classic that I got in my brain for about a month now, but it's a good point as well. That the heat one can be added to the repertoire. Um, so I think that's really going to determine it, but I, but I think Joel absolutely has a case and um, I don't want to jinx anything. Uh, I'm going to knock on wood here just for his sake and, and whatnot, but like he also has only missed two games besides COVID. And that's really impressive. I think he's played like he's played what 25 out of 26 games now since return. He missed that Grizzlies game. Um, but that's it. And, and so like, if he plays 71, 72, you know, that was one of the big issues last year. Like I, I probably preferred Jokic last year, but if they played the same amount of games and I think Jokic played all of them, it would have been a really, really tight discussion. I still preferred Jokic. I might've again, like, and so that sort of thing matters. It seems like Joel is a guy who could end up playing 70 games or 68 versus the, the 61, 62. And, you know, I, I don't think it's like a huge deal, eight games there, but voters seem to, Voters seem to fixate on that sometimes. So um, I I don't think I'd pick Joel to win, but I think he's absolutely in the conversation and the way he's trending. Like, I mean, if you're, if you're talking about like whose stock do you want to buy? Like Jokic has been great. You know, Giannis has been great, but like, I think it's, you have a great case to say that Embiid has the best stock right now, just the way he's played over the last two months. So um, I, I would give it to Jokic. I know that they're not, they don't have a great record, but, everything he does in conjunction with his improved defense, I think would kind of give him the nod and just, you know, just the reality he's played, you know, about five more games than Joel. Um, but I, but I think that can change. I'm not, by no means am I saying that like it's locked in stone or written in stone that Joel, that, that Joel can't win. And, um, and so I'm just, I'm just really impressed with him and, and, and all these guys really, I, you know, I was talking with Paul Hudrick the other day on his podcast. It's, it's cool how we have these six guys right now who are kind of the best players this year and they're all different, right. You know, um, I think that's really cool. And you can kind of see shades of Joel's game in all of them. And, and I think you can kind of see that and all you could, you could make that case if we're talking about from every, every specific superstars lens, but um, yeah, I, I think Joel is squarely in that conversation. And right now, if, if I was saying, who are my three finalists, I think Joel would be my third guy. And the fact that I'm picking him over a Steph Curry, a KD, a LeBron, you know, is, is a testament to how flipping good he is this year. And, and the fact that, he has he's put his team in a position to have a record that's good enough to warrant it. I don't subscribe to the, the record thing as much, but it does matter. And you know, 26 and 19 is probably good enough. And that's that's because Joel's been awesome in the 34 games he's played. Yep. Uh, having a guy who you might consider top three is not a bad place to be by any stretch of the imagination. So yeah, it's 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 all splitting hairs when you, you get to this this certain tier of players. I mean, you can make the case for any of them, depending on what stats you look at or whether you want to build a narrative case for someone. And yeah, you said the games played often comes into it. And I think oftentimes that just becomes like an easy out for people that they don't want to have to make a hard decision. So you you can say, well, he's, he's available for 10% more games than the other guys. So clearly that was more impactful, which there's, you know, there's, fairness in that statement i'm not I, i'm not saying you should discount that but uh, sometimes i just feel like that that just becomes an easy easy way out for some some voters but yeah if joel can you know stay healthy and i think that's been an under discussed thing this year how his conditioning has been incredible and the the two-way 
lift he's having to do for this team right now. And the fact that those DMP rest days just haven't really been there this year. Um, that's been really good to see. And it, it bodes well, not only for this season, but uh, you know, into the future that people kind of always assumed the injury specter would hang over him perpetually, but we haven't seen that as much this year. Um, so yeah, hopefully that, that can continue in the future and uh, you know, you never want to take it for granted, but uh, yeah, it looks good at the moment. And I, and I would just, I would just add too that like if someone wanted to make Joel their MVP right now, I would have no issue with it, especially because it's a really weird situation where it wasn't like Joel had a bone bruise and missed, you know, two weeks. He's a guy who was vaccinated and, and had a serious bout with COVID. Like you can never control injuries, but I think this is an even, yeah. this is a year to be even more lenient about missed games because it's like, you know, like it's, it's entirely out of his control, right? Yeah. Like it wiped out half the roster. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That. And so like, you know, and that's not, not to say like, that's not to say that if Joel missed 11 games with some other injury that, you know, I would be less receptive to it, but that's just to me is that I prefer Jokic and Giannis, but I don't have any issue if someone prefers Joel and I get it because it's like, if you're a Sixers fan, you're probably watching every game of his, you're maybe catching Joel, you're catching Jokic and Giannis when they're on ESPN or TNT. Like I, like I totally get it. If you watch him every night and you think he's the MVP because he's playing like it and that's not to demean anyone. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, but like, you know, and as you mentioned, everyone values different things too. Um, I'm really excited for this MVP race when when it comes down to the end of the regular season, and I kind of sit down and actually, you know, flush it out. And I expect Joel to be there, and and so I'm just you know just noting that I don't re- I don't necessarily think Joel will be my pick right now, but I'm not going to scoff by any means at someone who prefers him and, and disagrees with me because he's been he's been that good. And I just you know I just it's we've reached a point where I, I don't even have words for him sometimes i'll make i'll always keep notes obviously when i watch him but sometimes it's like you know i've seen this play from him now 46 times on the year like what what am i going to glean from you know, writing that down um, he's very good at, the, at basketball <laughs> yeah yeah I, I, I feel like that's you know i i didn't do much ul analysis because i was like one tweet today despite of having 40 and it was most of the it was like yeah he's really good and we all know it and and that's about that. And that's, you know, and so it's, it's cool that he continues to be in the MVP race and um, Sixers fans are just really fortunate. And as just someone who loves basketball, I'm fortunate to get to watch him, you know, three or four times a week. And that's not the case with every person who covers a team. And so uh, it's just been a joy to watch him. And, you know, the Sixers are in a really, I think a pretty, I wouldn't say really, I would say pretty good spot with him at the helm, you know, despite everything else you know, going around them, you feel like they have a good chance to win every game, you know, when he suits up. And as you mentioned, he's, you know, suited up for, for most games outside of his, you know, unfortunate, you know, three week absence with COVID. So that was a, a top of a conversation when Daryl Morey did a radio interview earlier this week for 97.5 with Mike Missinelli. He mentioned how having Joel playing the way he's playing, you know, gives you a shot of contention. And he said he would probably peg it at around 5% and it's not as high as he would like. Uh, and they should, be outside he considers them outside the top five where he would like to be but still having a guy like joel it gives you a chance so what do you do when you have a guy and you have that chance um and and he spoke about largely about the ben simmons situation and and where he said it's probably less likely that he'll be traded at the deadline than than not and that he's he is him and his team are doing everything possible to to work every angle and make every phone call to to make it happen, but uh, it just doesn't seem like the perfect deal is there right now. 
Um, and, and there were a lot of other things that uh, he covered in that, which I would encourage people to, to read Dave Early's piece on our site that, that covered it in depth. But Jackson, I wanted to ask you, what, what were your takeaways from Daryl's recent uh, public statements? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was really insightful. Um, you know, I think that's, that's one of the cool things about, you know, Daryl's a GM, obviously, you know, people can feel however they feel about Daryl's GM person, whatever it is. Um, you know, I certainly have my own you know opinions there, but I think Daryl is pretty insightful about things when he makes public appearances and, you know, someone who covers a team, I appreciate that. Um, you know, he's a lot of GMs will be kind of, you know, keep their cards close to the chest, which is totally reasonable as well. But just in terms of pure enjoyment, I like that Daryl is not afraid to speak his mind. You could argue that drove one former Sixers GM <laughs> out of his job was his uh, desire to keep things close to the best. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, yes, yeah, so maybe I shouldn't be praising close. Maybe if you want to keep a job, I guess. Maybe, maybe <laughs> pretty, Daryl's had a pretty good run here as you know, executive for quite a few years. But um, you know, a few things stood out to me, and I talked about those Paul as well on our, the pod uh, yesterday on Thursday. But that that five percent comment really stood out to me because he had he was featured in a Grantland article, I think almost a decade ago at this point. I think it, Zach Lowe wrote it um, about the fact that if you have at least a five percent chance of winning a title, which is a select few number of teams every year, you kind of have to go for it. And he said that he feels the Sixers are a team that has you know at least a five percent chance. And so to me, that signifies they're going to do all they can to improve the team around Joel and. Even if it's not the ideal move, you know, for Ben Simmons, that I, I just feel like that that was a pretty strong indicator. Um, and then just how how open he was discussing kind of, you know, Sacramento's trade partner was fascinating to me. Um, I think opening broadening the criteria from top thirty to forty uh, is interesting. And then apologies if anyone listened to the, the pod with me and Paul, you're going to hear a lot of the same talking points. But um, I think top thirty, we talk about all star caliber, can be a little more rigid and well-defined because you say either the guy's an all-star or he's about to be an all-star or he's not, right? There's a little less, it's a little more binary top 40. There's an X 10 set of players who can be anyone, right? Like, I mean, obviously there's can't be anyone, but you know, it's, it's pretty widely up to interpretation. Like if the Sixers acquire player X, Daryl can say, well, we were in this number and we see this thing and we see his fit with Joel and we view him as a top 40 impact player in this context. And maybe you don't agree with that, but you know, it's, it's Daryl, the one determining what a top 40 guy is. And so those two comments specifically really stood out to me. I just, that I just feel like a trade is, is going to happen. I just, I didn't think it was going to happen prior to his, his, his radio appearance, but those two things right there just really resonated with me. And it just, it feels like Daryl realizes how dominant Joel is and how good they are. I'm sure they know, you know, like the back of their hand, their record and net rating and all those things when Joel plays and the wins they have. And so, um, and they're looking at the climate of the league where you have, you know, the Nets are in a weird position. The Bucks look good, but also Brooke Lopez has been injured. The Bulls have some things going on. They're also kind of a first year core. The Cavs are awesome, but they're young. The Heat are good, but like, do they have enough firepower to really be definitively better than, than the Sixers? And so all of that combined, I just, I just feel like a move gets made. And I think there's enough out there that, you know, you're not going to find a star. I don't think you're not going to find a guy that you're like, oh yeah, he's unequivocally, you know, an all-star alongside Joel for the next three years. But I think you're going to find guys that you can upgrade talent. You know, they need help on the wing. They need help at backup guard. Um, you know, I mentioned Shake Milton's absence earlier. I mentioned Furkan Korkmaz's struggles. Those aren't two backup guards you feel great about going in the playoffs with. 
And so I just, you know, you look at a team like the Kings who have, you know, two or three guards available and, you know, a wing like, you know, like Harrison Barnes and maybe even have interest in Tobias Harris. I just, I just feel like a deal gets done. And if you want to go back to the top 40 thing, and I think Daryl also talked about the fact that it might be like a three team deal. Like it might not just be a two teamer. Um, people always say multi-team deal. And I'm like, every trade is a multi-team deal, but um, <laughs> I think like you could say that John Collins is a, is a top 40 player. I, I don't know. I, I would say he's probably a top 50 guy, but you could, I mean, we're splitting hairs there at that point. Right. So um, if we're looking at a three teamer there, I just, I just feel like there's so much smoke around the Hawks, the Kings, the Sixers, all of them look like they're in, they're primed to do something around the deadline. And so I, I just, I think those comments were pretty uh, insightful. And to me, they indicated that they realized how good Joel is and, um, even if they're not going to get a Dame Lillard or Bradley Beal, Zach Levine, and James Harden back, um, that might not be imperative to win a title or at least be a title caliber team around Joel, given the way he's played this year. Yeah, the the thing that stuck out to me was him talking about the top 40 guy and also mentioning like you could use that as a step up trade. He, he kind of alluded to down the road and he specifically mentioned it being like a young guy that could then be enticing to other teams. So it, I, I, this was a common thing in Sixers Twitter and everywhere else, but it just seemed like Tyrese Halliburton was, <laughs> he was, he was describing him. It was like playing guess who and doing everything you could to describe a person without saying the person. Well, um, didn't, didn't he compare him to like a caliber of Maxi's, like a player of Maxi's caliber? Yeah, and like and- same first name, same draft. Like, right. It, I think it, same age. Like, come on, like yeah. be a little more, be a little more discreet, Daryl. Yeah. A guy like Tyrese, cough, 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 Maxi. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. he couldn't have been more obvious. So it it did seem like that. And he was just saying to Vivek and King's management, just, hey, ask for a little bit less. And this this is good. Like just put the, putting the, the screws to them a little bit in the public forum, um, which, hey, I'm okay with a, a, a Halliburton Center deal. I'm, I'm very much on board with. I think that would... Uh, help the Sixers both in the present and uh, set them up well in the future. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. And the, the only cause for concern I had was that he mentioned he still feels it's less likely he's still doing the, like we will Ben Simmons come back if, and play this year. If we don't do the deal, we have everything we need is a Ben Simmons sized hole. Like we need defense. We need playmaking. We need rebounding. Uh, he's the perfect pairing for Joel Embiid. Is that just, Hey, I don't want to, I'm doing everything to maintain his trade value. I can, even if everyone recognizes that that's a sham. Is that just, you know, Yeah. It, it, to me, it just felt like posturing like, Hey, like you may hear that we're on the four yard line with the Kings, but like, you know, we feel like Ben might still come back. And so, feel free to throw your best offer at us. If you want to kind of get to the three yard line with us and by all means go for it. But like, I just like, I don't know. I don't want to over, I never want to overstate, you know, like how, you know, how an, how an executive thinks or how much I I feel like I can get them by, but I just, I can't, I can't get the idea that, that Daryl watches this team and thinks that the missing piece is Ben. I think Ben would help them. Like, obviously he's a good player. It's like, feel however you want about him. The defense would benefit from the transition game, but like they need a half court ball handler and a guy who can shoot off the ball or a guy who can attack off the catch with Joel. And that's not Ben. Like, I just, 
I know. So to me, it just felt like posturing. It felt like, you know, like Ben, we think you could help us. And if we can't find a deal, then we would love to have you back. Like, I, I think we're well past that point. Obviously everyone, everyone who's followed this situation feels that way. I'd imagine, but yeah, I, I just, I, I can't feel like that was an honest part is, is radio. And because I just like, I, I've watched every team this game's played this year, every game this team played, excuse me. And I, I don't feel like the Ben archetype is exactly what I'm missing. Yes. A player who's very talented and good would help them because, as I said earlier, they're a little short on talent. But yeah, they, not... they, they only have like seven of their rotation guys a lot of nights. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, another one would be helpful. <laughs> yeah, they had like seven, like 14 guys on rotation this year and, and six or seven are available right now. But I don't, I don't think the missing piece is Ben. Maybe the ideal version of Ben that everyone's thought of for four or five years now, but we've never seen that guy really beyond maybe the end of his rookie year and some of those. Joel Joel list games in the 2019 20 year before Ben got injured himself. So I just, I just can't, that just feels like posturing to me. It really does. I just, I think again, Ben would help, but it's, it's not the archetype that would solve everything for them because like, even if, even if Joel is as good as he was last year and they have this roster, like I don't think all of a sudden they're coasting to the finals. I think they, they would be better, but I don't, I don't feel like that archetype is exactly what they're missing. So I, and I, I feel Daryl is, is shrewd enough as a basketball mind to to see the glaring holes of the team, not of which are all Ben Simmons sized. Yeah, that the, the magical sixteen game winning streak to end the twenty eighteen <laughs> regular season. That's that's the Ben that's in everyone's minds. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I agree. It it definitely if you're hoping for a trade to happen by February tenth, I think there was a lot of positivity you could take away from that those comments. Um, I think despite Daryl saying it's less likely than, than it is to happen that uh, I think people can be encouraged. Then I feel like after hearing that I'm, I'm more inclined to think it's going to happen than I was going into it. So good, good stuff. If you are hoping that Ben Simmons has has a new uniform come mid February, as I think uh, 98% of Philadelphia Sixers fans are at this point. So (laughs) Jackson, thanks for your insight on that. Um, and thanks for uh, speaking with me this evening. Uh, unfortunately, I, I wish it hadn't been falling a 24-point blown lead, but that's the way it goes sometimes, unfortunately, with this team. Uh, so we can find your stuff on Liberty Ballers, but where else? I know you're involved in any number of things. Where can people find you on social media and where else can they find your work on the uh, the interwebs? Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, and I I agree that you know it would have been would have been cool to talk about Joel in a winning sequence or a winning format, but felt a little felt a little fair to talk about Joel and doing all, doing it all and coming up short uh, as a team. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jack Frank underscore DJF. Um, most of my Sixers analysis is in game or you know on podcasts like these or a little bit on the Rebellers, but uh, general NBA analysis I'm doing a lot of stuff on there, uh, a lot of clips and whatnot, and then my work written. Uh, or otherwise is at basketball news, dime up rocks and the analysts. And then as well, Sixers covered Louis Ballers. Appreciate having me on Sean. I'm, I'm sure uh, we'll be talking Sixers again soon with, with you or Paul or, you know, audio, whoever it is. And, you know, uh, I, I, I imagine it will somehow involve uh, Joel Embiid being very good and the rest of the team, uh, you know, either performing up to par or, or falling short. That's, yes. that's the way it goes under the Joel Embiid tenure these days. Yes. Uh, the one constant is Joel Embiid playing well, fortunately. So <laughs> we, do have, we, yeah, we do have that. Um, all right. So 
for everyone uh, listening. I'm Sean Kennedy. You can find me at Philly Fast Break on Twitter. I tweet much less frequently than Jackson and much less insightfully. Um, I, I do what my my three month old son allows. So <laughs> thanks, Jackson, again for coming on. And for everyone else, I'll talk to you next Friday.